want to be clear that the, the question I'm about to ask you, you understand, is rhetorical. I'm not looking for you to necessarily respond uh, out loud to me, but to think. And my question is this. What is the sin you are most ashamed of? What what is the sin that creates a a burden in you? That when you, you think about it, you have to admit that is... I would say that's probably the worst struggle I've had or do have. It's a question we don't really like to think about. But it is the reality of being human and we struggle with sin. And the question that arises if we have any sensitivity in our spirits at all is not just thinking about that particular sin. But the next question, what do I do about what I just did. And I think in a very real sense, this is what David is addressing in the 51st Psalm. It's, in some ways, it's a difficult Psalm to, to think about because it's, it makes us ponder the truth about ourselves and the struggles that we wrestle with. And yet... David knows it's vital to do that. Now, most of the Psalms don't tell us the context in which they were written. And if you read uh, scholars who write about the Psalms, they conjecture all kinds of things for a variety of Psalms. But they don't have to conjecture this Psalm. Because right up front in the introduction, it says, A Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came and confronted David about his sin of adultery with Bathsheba. We get the context of that pretty clearly. This is a story that takes place, recorded in 2 Samuel, chapters 11, chapters 12. David has been the king of Israel for a number of years. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, and in order to to, uh, cover that up, he ends up causing the murder of her husband. He eventually takes Bathsheba as his wife. And after this event, I don't know exactly how much time goes by, but a certain amount of time goes by, and God comes to the prophet Nathan and he says, I want you to go talk to David. Could not have been a real... uh, Uh, Something that Nathan anticipates, going to the king and confronting the king. Because, you know, kings have a tendency to do what they want. And uh, David may say to Nathan, wow, thank you for talking to me. He may say, off with his head. But Nathan goes. And through story, confronts David and says, you're the man, you know your sin. And David responds, In honesty and remorse and ultimately pens this psalm out of that experience. When you read this psalm, there is a sense that everything's still happening. There's There's a lot of future tense in here. He does not say, thank you, God, for hearing me. Thank you, God, for purifying me. He's asking God to do that. In fact, there are 20 petitions in this psalm of things that he is asking God to do. 
And so it's in the mix of that. It's, it's, in, the, it's in the context of David wrestling with his guilt and shame and, and remorse that he writes this psalm. What is interesting to me is that in the culture around David, most of the time, kings don't worry too much about their behavior. I'm the king. I do what I want. I'm the king. I'm, 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 the, I'm the king of Egypt. I'm the king of Babylon. I'm the, I'm the king of Assyria. I'm the king of Moab. I, I do what I want. That's one of the perks of being the king. I, I, I don't worry about how my behavior affects other people unless that behavior may cause them to revolt against me. But my, my own personal behavior is my own. I do what I want. I'm the king. And here is David, the king of Israel, saying, I realize that's not true. Because when you're the king of Israel, you don't answer to the people, you answer to Yahweh. And when Yahweh comes into the picture, now things like right and wrong and sin and evil are a big part of the picture. Now we read that and, you know, when there is something in us that we are tempted to so often excuse our sin. Find ways around the things that we've done. Well, you know, I'm committed to the truth. And, if I'm, and, and being committed to the truth means that I have a right to say to people whatever I want to say in whatever way I need to say it in order that they know I'm right and they're wrong. I mean, quite frankly, I hear that all the time. Not that I've ever done that, but I've heard people tell me about it. We find all kinds of ways to to justify our behavior and to say, well, I have the right to do that. And we, we will, even though we tend to not buy into this wholeheartedly, there's something in the back of our minds that also tells us, this is just about me. It doesn't have any bearing on anyone else. So... Leave me alone. But despite the fact that David may have the right as a king to not worry about his behavior, he does. And so do we. I do think one of the issues we wrestle with is calling sin, sin. We tend to use a lot of other names. And there's nothing wrong with that. Sometimes the synonyms can help, us, can help us grasp the idea of them. But sometimes we use synonyms in order to make us feel less like we've committed sin. And a part of our justification for our behavior is to say, well, that's, you know, that's just some rule that the church made up. Or that's just some rule that, that God made up. But we don't worry about that stuff anymore. I can do what I want. And what we miss is that whether we call it sin or we use some other term, the idea of doing wrong, doing what God has said don't do, is the problem is not that we have broken a rule. The problem is not that we have somehow offended God's sensibilities. The problem is sin always creates destruction. Sin is always destructive. And that's why God creates rules. That's why God says, don't do this, do this. It's not because God looks around and says, well, you know, 
This sounds like a good arbitrary thing to do, to tell my people not to do this. It's because he knows that doing those things will wreak havoc on our lives and often on the lives of other people. It's, sin skews our image of God. It skews our image of ourselves. It skews our image of other people. It destroys our relationships. You look at Adam and Eve in the garden. They had this amazing relationship with God. That it, it, you get the image at least that they, God somehow walked with them in the garden. In the cool of the day. And, and they have this relationship with God that is intimate. But when they sin, what do they do? When God appears, they run and hide. Now, what they look forward to becomes something that frightens them. Now, instead of seeing God as he is, their image of God has been twisted and skewed. And now they fear God. And that's what happens to us. And the problem is God is the source of life. God is the source of joy and peace and everything that deep inside, in the depths of our being, we are hoping to experience. All of that, God is the source of it. And sin builds barriers and walls between us and God and, and causes us to be unable to experience the fullness of what God has designed us to experience. That's why sin is a problem. And sin causes relation, breakdowns in our relationships with each other. It's, at its root, it's sin that leads us to hurt each other. Say the things we sometimes say. Do the things we sometimes do. And we all are, are both people who have been hurt and have done the hurting. I don't have to convince us, I don't think, that sin damages our relationships. Look at our world. Look at what sin has done to our world and and the, the horrific conditions of so many places of the world. We see it. I think it's imperative for us to understand the damage that sin causes because until we understand that, until we understand that what our, the damage our words can do and our actions can do and our attitudes can do, until we grasp that and acknowledge that, we're never going to come to the place where something is able to be done about it. Because it, it always starts in admitting that we are sinners who've sinned. In our tradition of the church, in the holiness tradition, one of the great things that I love about our tradition is there is this optimism of grace that we believe that our lives can be more than just mediocrity. We believe that God at work in us through his Holy Spirit can create in us lives that are, are connected to God in such a way that, that we are made new and we are redeemed and we are set free and, and we are changed and transformed and we're not, we're not, we don't have to just be stuck in old ways of living. But one of the things we have to be careful about and one of the ways in which the church has twisted that truth is to create the idea that we can actually, in a sense, be perfect. 
And then we get to the place where not only do we maybe not sin, but we're, it's impossible for us to sin. We don't even struggle with sin. And my argument to that is, the writer of Hebrews seems to tell us that Jesus had to wrestle with sin. That Jesus was tempted about sin. He didn't give in to it, but there was this, he, he's human. And to be human is to wrestle with sin. And you and I are not Jesus. And the truth of the matter is, as far, no matter how far we've progressed in our walk with Jesus, we still are people who are tempted to sin. We are still sinners who sin because none of us are perfect. And it's important for us to acknowledge that. I mean, David is called a man after God's own heart. And that statement is made of David not before all these events take place, but after. Now, that's a head-scratcher, isn't it? It says something to us about how, how close David is to God, and yet he struggles with sin. One of the, I think, one of the ways, that, the things that gets us into trouble is to feel like we have to be perfect. Instead of, we need to keep trusting Jesus. The first thing, being perfect means it's on us. Trusting Jesus means it's on him. And we're opening our hearts to him. And we acknowledge that we struggle. And out of that mindset, then comes the spirit that we get of David in the psalm to confess his sin. I think one of the reasons we hesitate to confess our sin is because people, we think people are looking at us and saying, boy, they're going to be so disappointed with me because everybody thought I was perfect. Well, the truth is, if people are honest, I doubt if anyone thinks any of us are perfect. I always tell people, just talk to my family and they'll set you straight. It's important for us to confess our sins. Something about saying it out loud, whether it's just to God or to someone else, something about saying, I did this, helps us. And we are so grateful for the Reformation and uh, people like Martin Luther who helped to, to make this corrective to some of the issues that were going on in the church. But I, I think that maybe one of the things that probably overcorrected is completely eliminating the confessional. Now, it needed to be changed and it needed to be fixed and there needed to be different things that happened about it. But the idea of, of a safe place where we can come and, and speak out, I did this and confess our sins, is important. I, people... Scholars will say that people who study the Methodist movement will say one of the, the key elements to the strength and the, and the ongoing power of the Methodist movement were the class meetings and the, and the bands. And in the bands, which are sort of the, the hardcore Methodists, they would get together every week, 10 dozen people, and they would sit in a circle, go around the room and talk about the joys and the victories of their life that week, and they'd all celebrate. And then the question would be, okay, what sins have you committed this week that need to be confessed? And in that confession, there was freedom. 
Because the evil one is the one who whispers in our ear, keep that secret. The evil one is the one who says, cover that up. Don't let anyone know. Because he realizes that secrecy doesn't help us find freedom. Secrecy keeps us enslaved. And it doesn't mean that we confess to everyone everything about our lives. But there ought to be at least one person or a group of people that we feel safe enough with, that we have enough of a relationship with, that we can go to them and say, I need to tell you this. And I need you to pray with me. And, and be a, maybe be an accountable person for me or to, to just help me. Because in that confession can be great freedom. I remember when I was fourth grade, fifth grade, there was a, my dad was a pastor of a church in Ohio and there was a young man, college age young man who was arrested. It was, I remember it happened on the 4th of July of that year. And uh, he was arrested for an incident that took place four or five months earlier in which the, uh, the attendant at a gas station was killed in, the, in a robbery. And this young man was arrested for that murder. And my dad went to visit him. He'd grown up in that church. My dad went to visit him and he heard the story. His friends had been drinking. He wanted to rob this gas station. And he did indeed kill the man. And he told my dad the whole story. He confessed the whole thing. And, and the first thing he said to my dad was, I am so glad this is out. Because now I, I feel such a sense of freedom. Despite the fact that he was beginning the process, the steps to being incarcerated. There is something about that that we all need. Someone that we can be honest with. But of course we won't be honest unless our hearts are in the right place. I mean, ultimately, what David is doing here is revealing the attitude of his heart. And he says in verses 16 and 17, Lord, I would bring sacrifices. I'd bring all the sacrifices in the world. I'd gather every animal I could and sacrifice it to you if I thought that's what you wanted. But I know that's not what you want. What you want is a broken and contrite heart. That's what you're looking for. You know, the temptation is to, I don't know, to, to do enough things that we feel like God says, all right, I, you've earned it, I'll, I'll forgive you. If we do just enough, practice enough spiritual disciplines, if, if, we, if we do enough good things, you know, we go to church enough, read our Bible enough, pray enough, do enough nice things for people, that then God will forgive us. But the reality is God is looking for a heart that says, I confess, I admit, I need you. And I believe you are the only source of forgiveness for me, of cleansing, of purifying me. See, the problem with thinking that we can convince God that we've earned his forgiveness is that the underlying idea of that is that God doesn't really want to forgive us. When you read the Old Testament, there is not much that makes God angrier 
than when his people take that kind of attitude with him. Because it is a direct confrontation on his character. They are in essence saying, God, you're just like all the other gods of the people around us. They don't really like people, and they don't love people, and they don't want to do good for people. And that's why they go through all the rituals they do, because eventually they can either manipulate or trick or or earn the right for the gods to be good to them. And from the very beginning, the Lord God of Israel has said, It's not about you being good enough. It's about who I am, my nature, my character. And the good news of the gospel is not we repent and then God will forgive us. The good news of the gospel is God loves to forgive us. We repent in order to experience that forgiveness. We put ourselves in a place where we can, we can actually experience what God wants to do for us. We don't have to convince God to forgive us. He has to convince us to let him forgive us. David begins this psalm by saying, Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion. Blot out the stain of my sins. That's how forgiveness is possible. It's because of who God is. And David is in essence throughout the psalm saying, God, be to me who you've said you are. It's intriguing to me that when you get to First Chronicles 21, you have the other big... Uh, recorded sin of David where he he does the census of Israel and, and it's a very complicated story and I'm not sure I understand all of it but the end result is uh, God says to the prophet and tell, to tell David you got three choices do you want famine to come upon the land do you want your enemy to attack you for a few months or do you want my wrath for three days now I suspect most people would say It's between the famine or my enemies. Because God's wrath? Are you kidding me? But David says, I'm in a tough place here. Don't let me fall into the hands of my enemies. Let me experience the wrath of God. Because ultimately, I am convinced that there is more mercy in the wrath of God than there is in any of my enemies, much less natural disasters. And it's because David understands the nature and the character of God. I think so often we miss that. We're thinking God is is judgmental and he's just looking for ways to, to wreak havoc in our lives. But nothing could be further from the truth. And, and it's, it's as if a lot of times we think that Human beings are more loving, more forgiving, more gracious than God is. And so many people outside of the church have that image of God because, quite frankly, we've perpetrated that image. 
And I know why, because we have a hard time forgiving each other. We have a hard time being gracious toward each other. And that's our human nature, and we all wrestle with that. And here's the reality. When we find it hard to trust other people who have hurt us, God doesn't have that problem. God just keeps forgiving us. Every time. Every time. Every time. Every time. And it means God's going to be taken advantage of. Of course he is. The whole story of God and human nature is people taking advantage of his graciousness and his goodness and his love and his compassion. But it doesn't seem to bother him. Because he keeps doling out grace and love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness again and again and again and again and again. And that's why John can write in his first letter, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. It's not because we figured out the right key to repentance. It's because of who God is. That's why. And that's the good news of the gospel. And David tells us that as he begins to experience that good news, then he experiences cleansing, purity, the guilt, the shame. It it begins to dissipate. But he also says that I, Lord, when, when you work in me, I want to teach other people about what you've done in me. I suspect we might be the opposite. We would say, Lord, thank you so much for cleansing me. Now, can we just sort of, we just sort of put this away. The less people know, the better. But David says, let's just get it out there. Now, granted, his sin is very public. But I'm not sure if I were in David's shoes, I would write a psalm about it to put in the hymn book of my people. I mean, if it were me, I'd say, surely there's got to be another one you could use. I mean, David has some greatest hits. Why does that have to be one of them? Or maybe 149. That's a good number. You know, let's just have 149 psalms. But I think a reason David does that is because it's a part of him saying, Lord, when you, when you cleanse me, I want to teach other people about what you've done. And one of the ways I do that is to not hide it, but to get it out there and to show them, despite what I've done, to see what you can do in my life. Because maybe they'll be inspired about what you've done in me to let you do that in them. The reality is, forgiveness doesn't necessarily mean that we don't live with scars. In fact, we will live with scars. And forgiveness doesn't eliminate those scars. We all are walking examples of people who've been scarred by other people's sin. And we've created scars in other people because of our sin. And sometimes we want to think that forgiveness, God's forgiveness means that that's all done. There are no scars. But often there are. But the good news is God is the master in his forgiving grace to make beautiful things out of scars. And one of the ways God does that is to use our scars to remind us. And maybe the next time we make the right decision instead of the wrong one. 
Maybe next time we hold our tongue instead of saying what we wish we hadn't. And sometimes it's an example to other people. They see our scars and see that, you know, actually you can be healed. And yeah, there's a scar, but it's healed. And God can heal me too. And sometimes the most profound witness to other people is not being scarless, but seeing what God can do by looking at our scars. Maybe that's the grace of God in some of our circumstances. None of us are good enough to never struggle with sin. And none of us are bad enough to never be forgiven. And the good news of the gospel is that God loves to forgive us. And instead of running from him, He's got his arms wide open, running to us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful, he's just, he's gracious, he's good, he forgives us. I have no idea what you may be coming with this morning. But if you're here this morning and maybe you're wrestling with some kind of guilt or shame or remorse, what a great time in this next few moments of silence to let God know your confession, your repentance, and your desire to let God forgive you. In a few moments, we're going to pray together at the altar and invite those of you who would like to, to come and pray for yourself or for others, as has been our practice for a while. But before we do that, I want, it seems appropriate, to take a moment and to offer together a prayer of confession. Maybe not everything in this prayer is something you're wrestling with, but maybe something is. And together, with a unified voice, We acknowledge our need for God. Heavenly Father, 
You are perfect in love, power, holiness, compassion, and truth. And we are not. Forgive us for being more concerned with taking love than with giving love. Forgive us for being more concerned with wielding power than with embracing weakness. Forgive us for believing that holiness is defined by behaviors we check off a list than with openness to being filled by your spirit. Forgive us for being unmoved with apathy toward people in need rather than being moved by compassion like Jesus. Forgive us for minimizing the truth so that people will think well of us rather than embracing the truth that sets all of us free. And forgive us for giving others the impression that we are more like you than we are. In your grace and mercy, hear our prayers and give us fullness of life that can be found only in you. And let us hear once again the promise of your word. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just and will forgive your sins. Amen.